All right. Well, as Rob said, we've been friends for for quite a few years, 12 years, that we've um, put up with each other, I mean, loved each other and endured. I would say that most people actually have had to put up with us because we get a big kick out of each other. Now, I don't know what you did for Thanksgiving, but I managed to get out of my kayak for one last paddle. People kept telling us that we were totally insane because as we paddled out, the water was just a wee bit cold. And everyone wanted to tell us what kind of weather was coming in. But we knew. Oh, we knew. And we were going to paddle out and enjoy this last bit of sun. And then fall died. And winter settled in, and we went to celebrate Thanksgiving that afternoon. And I don't know what you did, but a majority of my friends had huge plans to set up their Christmas decor. One of my good friends, Deb, she had rolls for each one of her family members and that went with a basket of decorations that they had to set up as soon as the dishes were cleaned. I didn't want to go to Deb's house at all because that sounds terrible to me. But maybe there are a few of you who do this every Thanksgiving. And so it has come to my belief that Thanksgiving is really the gateway drug for Christmas. It's just there. You're just there to eat food and then set up. But that's not the family I was raised in. I was raised in a family that usually after Thanksgiving dinner included maybe a nap and a walk. But we didn't set up Christmas. And in fact, truthfully, we didn't have a lot of traditions. We, you know, of course had a tree. We did an angel on top instead of a star. I like to believe that we're very spiritual. And then we'd have our nativity scene. We'd do different things, but nothing really traditional. My mom would have this freakish amount of ceramic Santa Clauses. I don't know where they came from. I... I'm fearful that I will inherit them. But that is pretty much the, sum, the summary of what we do for tradition in our family. Except for this. There is one classical Christmas movie that we partake in on Thanksgiving weekend and on Christmas Day. And this movie helps us get in the mindset of this joyful season, and it makes us think lovingly of our family and those who can't be near us. And this is the movie that we like to watch. It might not be maybe a a Christmas classic, The Christmas Lampoon Vacation, and uh, with its colorful language and topics, not always appropriate for kids. So what we like about it, though, is that we tend to maybe use the characters and align them with our family members. And if you've watched it, there's a crazy Uncle Eddie. I have a crazy Uncle Somebody who won't use his name, but he's like Eddie. And so we get a kick out of this movie because it makes us think of our family. Of course not us, we're the normal ones, but the rest of our family. And we laugh about it and we chuckle, but one of the things I like about this movie is that it's honest about relationships. Something about the holidays bring out this funkiness with our family, and maybe you felt it. Maybe they're sitting next to you right now, don't say anything. And you're just like, so when are you, when are you head home? <laughs> Love ya. And you're just escorting them out. Now, I'm sure that's nobody here in this room, but once in a while it happens, where we get this anxiety about family or relationships because we have so much going on. Maybe it's the money we're spending. Maybe it's the effort of making a perfect holiday. But I think holidays just bring out the stuff that's already there. We have got baggage in our relationships. We've got wounded and beat-up friendships and family members, and that just oozes out during the holidays. Well, today we're going to talk about a relationship and really what we can learn from it. 
It's in the Old Testament, and it has to do with uh, a covenant that was made. And I think this covenant is something that most people like to ignore or to kind of smooth over because it's difficult. It's uncomfortable to talk about this covenant between David and and Jonathan because we don't understand it. And so a lot of people are like, yep, made a covenant, awesome, go. But I want us to really lean into this. Let me set this up for you. I know that I know that Rob has been talking about Jonathan and what's been going on with his heart, and you've been talking about Saul, and you know that Jonathan is King Saul's son, his eldest son, and he is in line for the throne. So what about this Yahoo David that comes on? Well, David really was a nobody. I mean, he honestly, sincerely was a nobody. He was the youngest of the family. Any other babies in the family here? Hold strong, my friends. We know the oppression. But then, for those who are older right now, are planning to throw things at me. Um, David was the baby of a family. He was overlooked. He was a simple shepherd, a blue-collar job, if you will. Not something that people really held with a lot of respect. But what happened in 1 Samuel 16 is that God chose David over all of his family, over all of his brothers, even though he didn't seem the likely one. He chose, them, chose him to be the king of Israel. The next chapter, in chapter 17, David shows up because his dad calls him. So he's anointed. Let me get this for you. He's anointed. His dad puts him back into the field to tend the sheep. That's awesome. Go out there and watch the sheep. So Jesse, his dad, calls David back in and says, go check on your brothers. They're in this battle. I want, I want to make sure they've got everything they need. So David goes up to the battle, checks in with his brothers, And when he gets there, he hears this guy trash-talking God. And David is not going to have it because it goes against everything that's in him. And so this guy is Goliath, which most people have kind of heard that reference if you haven't read it, 1 Samuel 17, well worth it. But here's a summary of it. David gets mad and says, absolutely not. You are not going to talk about my God that way because my God is amazing. And so he went out trusting the Lord, trusting that the Lord was going before him, and he kicked some butt, and he took some names. And Goliath, this nine-foot giant, fell to his knees in his death. David was propelled into fame because he followed God. He was propelled into the family of, of Saul, of King Saul. He was brought into this royal place. Saul gives him one of his daughters to marry, and he gets to know Jonathan, the future king. And that's where we pick up with our verse. So it comes to 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 4, and I'm going to get out of the way so if you can read it. It says, After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. This is a big deal. It may not seem like a big deal looking at it. Like, ah, that's great. They were one in spirit. They made a covenant. Jonathan gave him a bunch of stuff. That's pretty awesome. What does that really mean? Well, it's huge. The one in spirit thing I want to talk about first, because I think it makes us the most uncomfortable. I want you to imagine, 
and maybe some of you have had this, where you have met someone and had a connection that was unlike anything else. Maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's one of your closest friends, maybe it's both. A few years ago, when it was my first youth ministry job ever, I met a woman named Heather, and Heather and I have been close friends ever since. And we met each other, and there was something about the other one. I think it was our loud insanity that attracted us to each other, where we just knew that we would be friends. And we've been friends for years because of it. And there's been days where I've called her, and I'm like, Hev, I don't know why, but I just needed to call and tell you that I love you. Like, I just, I was thinking about you today, and I just love you. And I'll get a a message from her saying, it's weird. I was sitting in staff meeting today, and I was thinking, Georgia, I just love Georgia. And we've got this weird connection and this weird love for one another where we look out for each other, where we, we care deeply about supporting the other person in their ministry and in their, their life and in their relationships. And if you haven't experienced that, man, I pray you do, because it's a gift. And for some of you guys, I think that can be not so macho, if you will. But let me say this. I grew up with all boys, cousins and a brother, and I can hold my own with you guys. And you guys are a little bit more mushy and touchy and squishy than you like to admit, all right? When I watch male bonding, there's something that's very unique, that women, we don't do it that way. And it's really a beautiful thing to watch. So I want you to think of Jonathan and David as the most amazing male bonding story that we can come up with. And when I think of male bonding, I think of a documentary, uh, actually two, that were done by Ewan McGregor, and Charlie Borman. I think we've got a picture of them. And if you don't know who they are, they're two actors, and they love motorcycles. So here they are, and they have decided to take their motorcycles from London all the way across Europe, all the way across Asia, up into Russia, then over to Alaska, up by Mount McKinley, down through Canada, through Minneapolis, whoop, whoop, and into New York City. That was trip one. Trip two was the northernmost tip of Scotland to the southernmost tip of South Africa. You can imagine, they, one, probably smelled horribly. But they had, this show shows this endearing moments where you see beautiful friendships and relationships that are deep and people that love each other. Not just with Charlie and Ewan, but their whole team. It's this team of men who get to know each other and travel with each other and laugh together and fight with each other, and there's this bonding. And what I noticed the most about watching that documentary is this. I envied it. I ached for what they had. I don't want to male bond with them because I don't want to smell them, but I ache for that kind of friendship. I ache for that kind of relationship because I think we were meant to. David and Jonathan, my guess is when people saw that kind of relationship, they ached for it. They wanted that. This was something unique and beautiful. And while it doesn't necessarily make sense in our culture, let me assure you it wasn't impure. It was beautiful and amazing. And I believe something that we would want today. So they made this moment where they became one in spirit. The next step was they made a covenant with each other. They made this this contract that's more binding than any kind of contract we understand. And restoration is a covenant church, so perhaps some of you understand what a biblical covenant looks like. 
But I always hate it when you go to church and somebody says, you know, that, and they don't explain it. So let me talk about covenant for a minute. A covenant is this merging with another person. It's not just a binding agreement. It's that, but it's something more. It's when two parties, maybe individuals or families or nations, would come together and they would take on this new identity as one. They would take on each other's stories and identity and life, and they would share life intentionally. They would bound themselves together. Now, our most common understanding of what covenant is today is through marriage. We understand it through a marriage concept, and that is beautiful and fabulous, but it's not just found in marriage. We go and we celebrate two people, two parties coming together, hopefully in the name of Christ, and covenanting together so that they become one. So we see that this is happening with David and Jonathan. They're covenanting, they're bonding themselves together. And, and, it's, and it's firm and it's lifelong. This isn't like, hey, let's go get a tattoo and hang out for, you know, throughout college. This is, we're best friends and then something more. Like, we're, we're in this. Well, the third part of this scripture that really is astounding to me is what Jonathan does. Now remember, David doesn't really come to the table with much. He's just a shepherd. He's got nothing but potential for sure, but he doesn't really bring anything to the table here. Jonathan, on the other hand, he, he's the next king of Israel, or so they all think. He is in line for the throne. Everything he wants is at his very fingertips. And he comes to this relationship with David and he takes off his royal robe and he puts it around David's shoulders. And when he does that, he's symbolically saying, this is my royal inheritance and it is yours. This is my birthright. It is yours. And then he goes on to take off his tunic, the very shirt on his back, and give it to David, putting himself in a wildly humbling state. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on then, takes off his belt, and hands David his bow, his sword, and his belt, symbolizing his power, his might, his ability. Jonathan laid it all out on the table. He just left it there. And you know what's amazing to me? Is that he wasn't concerned about what he was going to get back in return. What he was concerned about was how to pour into David, how to give of himself there. That's what he was thinking about. What happens after this is spread throughout some chapters, so we're not going to look at all of it, but I would encourage you to study this, is that David and Saul start buttonheads because David is wildly successful. Everything he touches, God just goes before him and does these amazing things. And Saul, whose heart is so not right with the Lord, gets jealous and insecure and starts to go after David. David would work for Saul and he'd be playing his harp so that Saul could calm down. And Saul would go through a fit of rage and throw his spear at him. This is not a good working environment. I'm just saying, get out. So what we have is Saul is after David. We've got moments in the scriptures that talk about David and Jonathan weeping together about this situation, grieving this. It goes on to say that 
Jonathan comes to David while his father is hunting him down and says, you will be the next king of Israel. What? Here is Jonathan supporting his friend, supporting his covenant partner to a place that he is going to take his birthright. And Jonathan and David continue to renew this covenant over and over again. They are committed. They are in. What's amazing to me is Jonathan's character. And it's always astounded me. It's always been pretty impressive. Jonathan cares about investing in his friend and pouring out who he is and what he has more than getting what is his. I couldn't do that. If I was entitled to a large fortune, and as much as I care about Rob, Rob comes after that large fortune, he and I are going to have some words. I am not that kind. I don't, I could work on it. So we've got some stuff to work on. But Jonathan's character is astounding here for us. And what really strikes me is the similarity between this covenant with Jonathan and David and the covenant that Jesus has with us. Jonathan comes to David to make a covenant with him. Jesus comes to you and I to make a covenant with us. David has nothing to offer but himself. We have nothing to offer but ourselves. Jonathan lays it all down on the table. Everything he's got, he pours it into this community, into this relationship, into this person. Jesus lays it all down. He didn't hold anything back. He poured into us. He gave it all. And we know what it cost him. These commitments, these covenants, give us an insight into who we need to be. And this is why. If we come into relationships with this concern of what do I get out of it? What will I get in return when I lay everything down? I guarantee that you will not be able to lay everything down. Because to mimic Jesus, to live like Jonathan, it means that we recognize that it is all about giving. It's all about giving all that we have regardless of what we get back. It's about mimicking Jesus, and it is difficult and painful and hard. If you think about the times that you've had to, for those of you who are parents, get up in the middle of the night and sacrifice sleep, not the best moments, but worth it, right? Like you love your kids, unless it was last night, and then I apologize. There's sacrifices that are worth these relationships, there are moments where you go the extra mile for a friend or for a spouse or for even a coworker, and it's worth it. But there's a cost to this. A few years ago, I was approached by some friends, and they asked me to be a part of a life group, a small group, if you will. And so we met, and I was excited about this, and I was like, oh, this is going to be great. And the unique part of this small group is that we're all female pastors, now, that might be a little bit more common in the Covenant Church, but in the church overall, not so common. And so we came together, and we'd meet every other week, and we started to really just connect. And something became more and more beautiful about this. Well, as we came together, we would pray, and we would seek God, and we would start hearing stuff from the Lord, which I'm not a charismatic, but some of them were, and we would just start, things were connecting. And I was like, wow, I'm really watching the Lord move here. Well, we started talking about our relationships, and we started talking about this group. 
And the word covenant started being thrown around. Now, I love covenant, but I know what that means. And I am a little bit of a commitment phobic. So when you say, we should, we should have a covenant, I would say, see you later. Because that's lifelong. You're asking me to commit forever. And that's scary enough with one man, let alone a whole group of people. I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure if I'm interested. So being a person that likes to look at all the angles, I invited my friend Polity, who's a professor at the undergrad at Bethel, to come in and talk to us about covenant. Because I just needed to get my head around why we would do this. What would be the purpose around this? What would be the benefits? And so we started talking, and what came out of this is that there was a commitment level that we were going to bring to the table where we laid everything out. As female pastors, we wanted to come alongside of each other and support one another and to pray for each other and keep each other accountable in our theology and our orthodoxy and and our practice of how we live out our faith. We wanted to speak into each other's marriages and relationships and communities and our ministries so that we could be better at what God had called us to be. Again, I was freaking out because I know what this means. I understand the cost that Jonathan paid, and I wasn't interested. But as we prayed about it, God just laid it on my heart over and over again. This is a community I've called you to. This is a community I want you to be a part of. And Georgia, that means you commit. Sometimes I don't like what God says to me. And I tell him that. We're pretty open. But this last fall... I committed to eight other women in a friendship covenant where we committed to keeping each other uh, and calling each other out on our identities and keeping each other true to who God created us. And this is a picture of my eight covenant partners. Now, it still astonishes me, and the reason it astonishes me, not only because they got me to commit, but because as soon as I said my pledges to them and we talked about it, something happened where there was a depth of love that I haven't had for someone before. Now, I've I got incredibly close friends. And you need to know that none of these girls, while well, I love them, I should call them women because none of them are young, that young. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm the oldest, so it's fun for me to call them old. Um, none of them are my closest friends. Not one of them is my best friend. My best friend's not in this picture. But what they are, are they're my, my covenant partners. They're the people that I have committed to loving to showing them who their identity of Christ is, to being in intentional community with. And I've committed to coming to them and pouring out everything I have into our community. It is awkward, and sometimes I catch myself wondering, well, what are they going to give me back? What am I going to get back? The last few weeks have been really uh, some bumpy weeks for me, some difficult weeks and some personal aspects. And this last Sunday, we were going to pray for Joy, who is the tall redhead. And she is, and I was like, that's great, we can talk about Joy, but I am hurting, I need to be prayed for. And it was all about me and this neediness. And I had to correct my thoughts around this because it wasn't about what Georgia needed. We have this idea of individualism where it's meet my needs, give me what I want, what I need at this moment, and being in this kind of covenant with each other, well, it challenges that. We were raised that way. We were raised to think about me and what I want and making sure that I'm, dependent, I'm independent and I don't need in other people. 
And God continues to show me, in fact, we do. We do because it aligns with who God created us to be. God in his trinity is relational. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they're relational. Not just with their creation, but with one another. We bear that image. We aren't called to be these individual lone rangers in life. We're called to be relational because it's who God created us to be. And so, like Jonathan laid down all that he had, we too are called to lay down everything we have. I was able to do an internship for pastoral care when I was during seminary and went to this residency for retirement and for hospice and, and uh, just got to spend some time with people at the end of their life. When I got there, I got to know two different, two different sets of people, a couple, and they are just delightful, lovely. I would go to their room, and they got to have a shared room, which was unusual and fabulous, and they'd always be in there watching baseball, incredibly loud, and we would sit together and talk, and I'd ask them about pictures, and they would tell me stories, and they would just talk to me. They just needed someone to talk to. And then there was a woman who I got to know, and she was lovely. And I could never find her in her room because she was always in somebody else's room chatting away. She was a little social butterfly. Or she was in the community area just talking to everyone, loving people. She was intentional. Man, she was out there just in relationship with people. Well, the last few weeks of my internship were pretty impactful because this woman, this social butterfly, came down with pneumonia. And I'm sad to say that that pneumonia took her, but... Happy to say that she went to the Lord. And so I was able to have this distinct privilege of holding her hand as she took her last breath here on earth. And I prayed over her and I sang to her, which I don't think helped, and just spent time with her. And she went in this peaceful place. Like she was just serene in her moment of death. And then her community filed in to that hospice room. Her family had been traveling and had missed the the moment, and this room filled up with staff and with residents, and people celebrated her and talked about who she was, and we covered her body with the community quilt, and we proceeded to follow her body out through the hallways as a processional to say, this is our friend, and we love her, and we care for her, and we will walk with her as she leaves her last home. And it was meaningful, and it said, so much without saying anything at all. Now, my last day, I went to the couple, and I got to spend time with them. And I said to them, this is my last day. I'd brought them some of their favorite treats. I like to bribe people and brought flowers for the wife. And, and the husband looked at me, and he started to weep. Now that, I'll tell you what. Anytime a man cries about something I've said, it's like the worst moment of my life. I'm like, I'm so sorry, I'll take it back. But I wasn't able to stay, and so I had to walk through this with him, and, and he kept, in the midst of his sobs, I mean, genuinely sobbing, he said, I, I just get so lonely, and who is going to come talk to me? And who's going to come spend time with me? No, no one comes to talk to us. Here's the difference. That couple is lovely and wonderful, but their understanding of community and relationships was to come to me. 
They sat in their room and waited for people to come to them and give them what they needed. They waited for God to come and give them what they needed. And this woman went out into the community and gave them what they needed and poured into relationships. There was a different mentality and we have the same choice. We have the same choice to decide whether or not we are waiting for community to come to you and to us or if you are waiting for community to go into it. If you're going to be the one that goes into the community, what is your choice? Is it going to have to come to you or are you going to go into it? Jonathan laid down everything. Jesus laid down everything. And if we can't come to relationships, be it your spouse, be it your family, be it your closest friends, or be it your relationship with the Lord, with the mentality of pouring into that, we are going to cause ourselves some pain. Looking at that couple as they wept and they mourned being left was so clear to me that that is what our society teaches us. Don't depend on anyone. Do it yourself. And I champion that. I don't like depending on people. I want to be a strong, independent woman who can get it done. And God wants me to be this woman who depends on him and my community, and I don't like it. And I bet some of you can understand that. But I also don't want to be in that room watching baseball, waiting for someone to come to me. I want to be out in the community and loving the stink out of people and being a part of community. When you think of your life groups, are you going there to pour into one another? When you come to restoration, are you here to pour into others? Because often enough what we hear from church is, I didn't like that sermon. I don't like this Bible study. I don't like the worship. I don't like how we do prayer. Do you like what you're giving? Because it's a hard question. And my friends, I have had to ask the same question of myself. And sometimes I fail miserably. In fact, probably a good majority of the time. But God created us to be relational. And God created us to be like him. And that kind of relationship is pouring into your community, bringing everything you've got and laying it down. Do you think for a moment that Jonathan regretted giving up his birthright? I don't think he did. Because when he gave all that stuff up, he was saying to the world, this relationship is more important than anything I have here. How will the world see us when we love each other and when we live this out? Will they see us as someone that says, all this junk, all this prestige and power, all my birthrights, all my independence is so meaningless when it comes to the kingdom of God and to the church and to one another? Because restoration can be a church here in Apple Valley, here in the South Metro, that can change it. You can leave a wake like that woman did where people follow this procession of what restoration is doing. You can make the difference. But you have to be willing to lay it down. Today, we have the great honor of taking communion together. 
And when we take communion, I want you to remember that that is a part of us going to the table where Jesus laid it all out for us. And so wouldn't this be a beautiful time for us to get honest with the Lord and say, what holds me back from pouring in to everything I've got to my relationships and to my relationship with you, Lord? What holds me back? What wounds, what fears, what holds me back? This is our chance to meet with the Savior of the world who gave up everything without any expectation of getting anything back. And that is what we're going for. Let's pray. God, I thank you for each person in this room. I thank you for how you've created them. Lord, relationships are tough and they are scary and they are uncomfortable. But Lord, we know that you've made us to need them and to need you. And so God, speak to us where we're at. What is going on in our lives that is not right, that we need to get right with you and get right with one another? Lord, we pray for your hand to be upon us and to guide us and to speak to us and to lead us in this. And Lord, we love you so much in your name.